So, Andrew read for, my, for us this uh, passage uh, in Acts chapter 2. It's, it's near the end of the sermon that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. God sends just this baptism of the Holy Spirit on the apostles, and because of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire, sound of a rushing wind, and the ability to speak in all of these different languages that are there represented on the day of Pentecost, a huge crowd gathers. Peter takes advantage of that to give the first recorded gospel sermon after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. And the Jews, it's a strange message to the Jews, but it is good news. And we know it's good news partly because of the way that they respond. 3,000 people join the Christ movement, and they demonstrate in their life through generosity, through joy in each other's presence, that God has transformed them. This is the new kingdom that's coming. It's interesting if you do an analysis of the structure of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, you see that he sort of builds to a crescendo. He starts with some scriptures about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you know what Joel was talking about? That's what we're having now. This, that's what this is. And he sort of gradually builds. He talks about the miracles of Jesus and various other things that the people that are there can witness to. And in this, uh, in this sermon, the resurrection of Jesus becomes sort of the cap of both the evidences that he's giving and the good news that he's preaching. It was tremendous good news to the Jews who believed in God, but it turns out that when Christianity spreads beyond the boundaries of Judaism, starts preaching to Greeks who've never cracked the Old Testament one time, they don't know any of those prophecies, they don't know anything, it turns out that the preaching of the resurrection is good news there too. And from that day until this, one of the strongest reasons that Christians have had, both intellectually and emotionally, for believing in what we believe is the resurrection of Jesus. For the next few weeks, I'm going to be talking seven reasons. I'm going to be talking about seven reasons to believe. There are way more than seven. I understand that. Seven just seems like a nice biblical number, so I'm going to do seven. Uh, And I'm going to start with the resurrection because that's where a lot of the gospel preaching uh, ends up or focuses. It's it's not just Acts 2, but in Acts 3 and in in Acts 17 and lots of other places, whatever evidences are given will come back to the resurrection of Jesus as sort of the, the, the final piece of evidence, final piece of reason for believing intellectually, and also the final piece of good news to change our hearts and to make us what God wants us to be. So I want to talk a little bit about the resurrection. Every human being, whether you read the Bible or not, whether you're raised in church or not, whether you have any religious connections or not, every human being faces the problem of death. Now, we react to that in a variety of ways. A lot of people just say, could we just talk about something less morbid? Could we talk about something more pleasant? But every human being faces the problem of death. We we look ahead and we know that 
if you're a Christian, unless Jesus comes, we one day are going to join those people who have already died. Our loved ones pass away, and we one day will pass away as well. That's the problem of death. And the problem of death, the more you think about it, most of us just find ways not to think about it, but the more you think about it, the more difficult it becomes, the more difficult it makes our life. Because we realize that death, if this life is all there is, just living here for 70, 80, maybe 90 years, is all there is, then even this stops mattering very much. And you don't have to know the Bible to know that. Philosophers have have worried about that and nibbled around at the edges of that. And the Bible talks about it as well. In uh, Psalms chapter one or Psalms one hundred three verse fifteen, the life of mortals is like grass; they flourish like a flower of the field. The wind blows over it, and it is gone, and its place remembers it no more. That's beautiful imagery, but what's the imagery about? How meaningful is the life of a flower? from 4,000 years ago. What's left of that flower? Bingo. Thank you, Eric. That's exactly right. It says it lives, it flourishes for a while, the wind blows, it dies, and worse than that, it adds that last little coda. It says... And its place doesn't even remember it was there. You give time long enough, and all trace of that flower is gone. If this life is all you and I have, you don't have to be a Bible believer to know this. This is just logic. If this life is all you and I have, then we're ultimately going to be like that flower. People might remember us longer then they remember the life of a flower, right? There might be people around 100 years from now who still, you know, have a photo of you and say, this is great, great, great grandmother. Uh, if you're famous, you do something amazing, you, your name may show up in history books. That happens to a few human beings, not to very many, but even those eventually are plowed back into the nothingness of the passage of time. And let time Go on long enough, and death erases the significance of what we do. Death is a problem for every human being. Sometimes people who are reacting against Christianity say, no, death doesn't take away the meaningfulness of my life. The fact that I only live here and now, I don't have a life to look forward to after death, that makes this life even more important. I've heard that, actually, Uh, that That makes this life even more significant. Because I know I have just this time with these people that I love and just this time to do the things that are important to me and I don't have a second chance to make it right and I don't have a chance to get it right. They say, that's what's significant. If you analyze the people who say that and, and actually find out what it is that they're claiming, they're basically saying, that they're kind of changing the definition of significance or meaningfulness. They're telling you that what meaningfulness amounts to, what your life or your actions being meaningful amounts to, is that it's something that you care emotionally about. 
very deeply in some way. And that's not the problem that confronts us when we think about death. I can care about all kinds of things. My problem is, when my mind rationally looks at stuff, it says, the stuff I care about most, if time goes on long enough, it will grind it away to nothing. If this life is all there is, it will grind it away to nothing. There will be, it will be just like that flower that existed 4,000 years ago. Absolutely, completely, as if it had never existed. Making no difference at all. And that's the way all of my actions will be. So here I am trying to think that my actions matter, that they're meaningful somehow. Am I going to keep my marriage vow? Or am I going to break it? Am I going to take care of the children that God has given me? Or am I going to abandon them? Or worse, abuse them? Am I going to step up when I see injustice in our society? Am I going to do something about that or at least try to do something about that? Or am I just going to sit passively by and watch another friend's rerun? Those things matter. When we experience them, it seems like those objectively matter. Even if I don't know that they matter, even if my emotions are totally out of whack, they matter anyway. They matter anyway. That's how we experience it. And what the facts of death teach us is that if this life is all there is, they can't matter the way they seem to matter. They are ground away to nothing. Every human being faces that problem. And I'm pretty convinced that one of the reasons why Christianity was successful in the first century and one of the reasons why it continues to be, in the broad sense, the most evangelistic, most successful idea in terms of converting people that's ever existed in human history is because it brings this good news that there is life after death, And here's the evidence for it. God has raised Jesus from the dead. God has raised Jesus from the dead. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says, if the dead aren't raised, we are of all people most to be pitied. If Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, we're of all people most to be pitied. He says, if the dead aren't raised, then, then what does it matter whether we live righteously or don't? And so... This is good news, and it is also one of the key reasons for believing what it is that we believe. Now, there are skeptics who, confronted with what Christians claim about the resurrection of Jesus, have all kinds of answers and and various objections that they raise. Some say, we can't believe in the resurrection because I don't have any unbiased testimony to it. When you tell me about the resurrection, what do you point to? The Christian Bible. Well, how can you trust the Christian Bible to testify to the key facet of the Christian faith? That seems circular. How can you give me a neutral witness to the resurrection? You guys have heard me talk about this before. Can you give me a a neutral historian from the first century who can testify to the truth? Of the resurrection. Let's think about that for just a minute. Is the resurrection 
the kind of thing that could have a neutral witness. What kinds of things can you be a neutral witness about? How many witnesses were at the sixth game of uh, the playoffs last night? There were a lot, and most of them ended up unhappy, right? How many of those were neutral? How many you reckon were neutral? I don't think very many in that stadium were, right? Because that was an emotionally compelling event. What kinds of things could you even manage to be neutral about? What kinds of events? Only stuff that you don't care about. You know, I can be neutral about is it raining or not, because I don't care that much. I can be neutral about things like that, but things that matter to me that I get emotionally invested in as I got in that game last night because I was sure they were going to pull it out. But don't get me started. Things like that, I become invested. So those fans, those Oklahoma City fans who were the majority last night, who were rooting for the Thunder, they are not unbiased. They are not neutral. Could they tell you reliably what happened? Many of them can tell you in great detail what happened. Many of them can tell you what they would have done if they'd been Scott Brooks. Many people have already heard some conversations like that. Uh, And so, yes, they're not unbiased. (laughs) They're not neutral because they're emotionally invested, but they have perfectly reliable testimony. There are some events which are so emotional, you couldn't conceivably have a neutral party to testify to them. And the resurrection is one such event. You just can't imagine. You can't imagine a historian saying, I testify that I saw Jesus raised from the dead, proving that he's the Son of God, and the only hope I have to be saved, but I'm neutral, I have chosen not to believe in him. You can't imagine somebody giving that testimony. If you believe Jesus is raised from the dead, proving that he's who he said he was, proving that he's the one that's coming back to judge the world, you already are going to be a believer, or you're crazy. You can't have a neutral witness to an event like this. Do we have reliable witnesses? Yeah, We really do. We have people who are extremely honest, who even tell about the embarrassing stuff that happened to them and to the people that they're close to, and who gave their lives in many cases for the truth of what they testified to. Are they reliable? Yes. Are they unbiased? No, because that's a crazy standard of proof that we just can't submit Christianity to. Another objection that's sometimes raised is this ancient people believed all kinds of things. And they believed in the resurrection uh, very easily. It's not so easy for us. We know better. What do we say in response to that? Yeah, how many ancient people, what's your evidence for that, first of all? That's right. Not supposed to be making claims without evidence. What's your evidence? Second, uh, Ancient people, just because our knowledge of them is limited, doesn't mean they were limited. One of the big problems we have when we think about ancient people, or even people that are distant from us, is we kind of naturally dock them about 40 IQ points. 
It's because the picture we can form of them is, is limited. So we just think they're, they must be limited. But they're just like us. They had the same range of skepticism, the same range of questions, all of the same things. And, and in the Gospels, people are puzzled by the resurrection. Even the believers, the people who are the disciples who followed Jesus, when Jesus shows up in Luke, it says, and they worship, but some doubt it. Some doubt it. It says that Thomas, famously, a follower of Jesus, <clears throat> if history is uh, uh, correct, then he dies for the belief in the resurrection. But when he's told about it, his first reaction is no way. That just doesn't happen. That just, just like a modern skeptic today. Unless I see it with my own eyes, I can't believe it. That's Thomas. And so don't tell me, don't come to me with some sort of simplistic idea about what ancient people were like. These folks were just like you and me. There are all kinds of ranges of skepticism. And the fact is that the evidence for the resurrection that was presented was strong enough again and again and again to make converts. I don't think people, I don't think faith works like an algorithm, like, a, like solving a math problem. It's not that, well, I can put four pieces of evidence in place and that will force you to be a Christian whether you want to be or not. I think that to be a Christian, I have to respond to the word of God. I have to do that. But, but these pieces of evidence were crucial for helping people to clarify their objections, and to help them to see the truth of what was being preached to them. And that happens for Thomas, and it happens for lots of other people as well. The fact is, we know that the idea of Jesus being raised from the dead doesn't even make sense in the Jewish culture the way that the Christians preach it. This is a point that I've talked about before. N.T. Wright makes this point in, in very exquisite detail. Uh... The Jews believed, you can see this belief in John 